Welcome to Lawyers Living Well, a production of the State Bar of Georgia's Attorney Wellness Committee and the Lawyers Assistance Program. Lawyers, this is your resource for all things wellness. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Lawyers Living Well podcast. I'm Lynn Garson, Chair of the Lawyers Assistance Program of the State Bar of Georgia, and today I am so pleased to welcome my good friend and fellow advocate, Paul Knowlton. I could spend the rest of the time on Paul's bio. I won't. I'll just give you a few highlights. 25 years in initially an IP practice, and it's ranged from everything, big law to Paul's own boutique firm, now a partner at Stanton Law. And here's the piece that's completely amazing. About 15 years into his practice, he undertook a master's in divinity program. So how good do you think that is for law and wellness uh, in the state of Georgia? And since then, he has concurrently worked in both of those arenas, taking a very active role in Georgia's attorney wellness efforts, including the Lawyers Assistance Program and the Wellness Committee. And this I didn't know. Um, Co-author of the 2021 Amazon number one new release business ethics book, Better Capitalism. And I hope that you'll have a chance to tell us about that sometime during this conversation. But first, I'm going to dive in um, into the first question, because we've got so much to talk about, right? We do. And thanks for that lovely introduction, Lynn. And I'm honored to be part of your uh, your your work here, the podcast, and just generally the work that you're doing with the State Bar. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you. Uh, so this is a, a question I'm thrilled to ask. And you had said you wanted to talk about organizational well-being in the context of the practice of law. What does that mean to you and why is it important? So, Lynn, I had a watershed moment as a young associate when I had a managing partner tell a group of us during an annual retreat that the practice of law was a plantation system and you're all very well paid. Those words have resonated with me since. And what he was trying to get the point across is that we had just upped our uh, billion requirements and of course we're going to get a pay raise and we should all just be grateful and keep you know head down and keep grinding away it, it was just you know an insight into a person's thinking and, and he's not the only one but and it's not everyone who has that view but this idea then resonated with me and has kind of stayed with me about if the if the leadership has a perspective whatever the leadership's perspective is on the practice of the law that's going to help really create the culture of the firm, big or small, and we're all going to work under that system. That system can be healthy or it can be harmful, really. It's um, it's Peter Drucker, the management guru from the 50s, right? And Warren Buffett later on have both said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So uh, we can have all the plans and, and, and efforts that we want, but if we don't have the, a good culture, a healthy culture, I mean, everything else is just, it's a struggle. Maybe a quick analogy is feeding the goldfish, right? The goldfish, if it's in a dirty bowl and the bowl's not cleaned out, if it's toxic in there, goldfish can do as much exercise and yoga as it wants. It, it's going to be harmed by the environment, right? It's not enough exercise and yoga. It's going get, to get, get that fish healthy. 
in that environment. I am so on that page. And if you don't have to tell this story if you don't want to, but I never forgot the story about FBUs. Will you tell that one or not? <laughs> I, I will. Yes. Another another formative uh, event in, in my career early on was at a firm that I just loved. And there was a lot of internal tension at the time. Uh, the associates were being, you know, sort of picked off to go across the street to another firm, other firms, just anywhere. It was uh, during the growth of web version, you know, 1.0. And, and there was some tension at the partnership level. And a junior partner reported to some of the associates that in debating whether to give associates raises in order to keep them from being lured away, one of the partners said, look, they're FBUs no reason to increase their salaries, right? We, they're FBUs. So didn't learn what the phrase FBU meant in law school. And certainly it's not in Black's dictionary, but it's uh, his use of it was fungible billing units. You know, he just, we were literally the cog in the machine and it, there was no, there was no concern for the person or the loyalty or the, perhaps the training that they had invested in me. Uh, it was just this mindset of 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 profit, really profit above all else is really the message I got through these two formative uh, exchanges with some managing uh, managing attorneys. And and it, it, we we got to be clear about this, right? Any firm, any enterprise has got to make a profit at the end of the day. Even nonprofits, we don't call it non we don't call them profits. We call them reserves at the end of the day. We've we've got to have it positive income, positive cash flow, but but it doesn't, and this is the crux of it all, it doesn't have to be at the expense of everything else, right? We it, it can it can all we can have a enough profit. We can have enough generated income at the end of the year and keep some other things in balance. Um I, I've got a question uh for you, Lynn, and you may not know, but I, I really wonder why we at least the big law, right? M law two hundred and above why why do we publish PPP profits per partner? I mean, what's what's the purpose in doing that other than some sort of a horse race or arms race? In, that in, in bragging rights, right? That yeah. So, so if every year, if that's you know, it's kind of what gets measured gets focused, right? So if we're in a horse race every year to maximize or increase profits per partners, so that lawyers at one firm can brag to the lawyers at the other. Um, someone's got to pay the price for, for maximizing that profit. And, and, and it's, you know, it's associates, it's the partners too. And the partners aren't just isolated from suffering, you know, yeah. and, and high hours and, and the burdens there. There's a lot of burdens at the, at the executive level, but, but why put ourselves in that context? You know, we could, it's just a construct. It's a system that we've made. We can have better systems, right? Totally agree. Um, and I could spend forever on that because sometimes it feels very David and Goliath, you know, with the wellness effort, because you're going up against the bottom line, you know, and if you can't prove that what you're telling people will help people feel better and work better, if you can't really prove that that goes right to the bottom line, you're fighting an uphill battle, you know? Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's work being done in that area. You know, what's the value of, of you know, reduced uh, uh, attrition, like keeping, keeping your people here 
uh, not having churn, right? Uh, there's there are at least some studies from Harvard Business Review, from ABA. I've I've seen those, and yeah, but then the message just has to get firm by firm, company by company, whatever kind of context we're in, right? But we're lawyers, so we talk about law firms. But they just have to win over the heart and the mind of the person making the decisions or people making the decisions at the end of the day that, yes, we need to make a profit. No, not at the cost of everything else, including our own lives. And we can have more of everything in a balanced way. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll be interesting. I have always thought since I've been engaged in this, that the younger folks, you know, the millennials and younger, the Gen Z, they won't do what we did. They would no more be a fungible billing unit. Um, mostly, you know, they've they have sort of gone on strike against that. I wonder, and I won't be alive to see it, but I wonder if when they're in the position that you know the the powers that be are now, will that still be true, or will the bottom line have seduced them to the point that you know? I mean, that's that's a useless thing to ponder, but I do wonder. I bet. I bet five dollars the bottom line will overtake them and they will become, you know, the example that they've been following and being trained under. It's just how it, it is. It hasn't changed. Anyway, that that, that that's where my bet would go. I'm gonna bet against you. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna bet against <laughs> Hope you. Hope so. Yeah. Hope you yeah. win. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is something also that I am so excited to ask you about because you have perused, you have really gotten to know this report that I'm going to talk about, and I'm excited to get your take on it. So you have read and digested, that's not even a strong enough word, the seminal 2017 report from the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. Could you please give us a quick overview? And I know it's hard to be quick because that's a huge report. And also walk us through your thoughts on the report's emphasis on spiritual well-being. You know, I mean, because that was a little bit of a surprise to be in there to some folks. Thanks. I think it is a surprise uh, both to have the report generally. The ABA led this effort uh, on the National Task Force of Lawyer Wellbeing. In, in, in 2017, they came out with this report that gave a nice overview and spoke to the various stakeholders in the legal services and law profession, um, from judges to, to, to regulators to legal employers, the law schools, the associations, all, all across the spectrum of stakeholders, and, and called attention to things that we can do to improve our wellness and our well-being. Because law is, you know, I want to make sure this message gets out clearly to everybody. And I'll, I'll say it time and again. Law is an honorable profession, right? We we serve. It is literally one of it's historically considered one of the three great professions, along with medicine and, and theology, right? It's law for the preservation of society, medicine for the preservation of the body, ministry or divinity, theology for the uh, preservation of the soul. It, this is one of the great professions. We serve this wonderful, wonderful service. Um, but, but our tension often comes in is, you know, practice as a profession. So how do we strike the balance between this service and this profession? Well, we've probably tipped too far into the for-profit perspective of being lawyers. Um, and, and so I think the ABA report does a nice job of just trying to pull us back into a balance. And 
what did strike me and what did strike a lot of people, I think, in this report, and I just I, I've got it memorized now, page nine of this report is a, a diagram. It's defining lawyer well-being is the, the title there. And it's got these six buckets, right? It's, it's, it's got these six. I'll run down it real quickly. It, it is emotional, occupational, intellectual, social, physical, and spiritual. And and I recall when I read that, I was very surprised that it included the spiritual aspect. Now, I, I know Lynn, I think we've had this con- I know we've had this conversation before. I'm not saying religion, right? I say the word spiritual. There's a there's a, a definition uh, that I use when I present this and CLE materials, particularly uh, a definition of spirituality. I'll use so that people are clear. I'm not talking about religion. If one has a religious tradition, a faith tradition. Great, you can overlay that in if you want, but but others, you know, you don't have to, right? For the first time, really, this past um, you know, this past uh, CLE last month, the uh, Attorney Wellness Committee's um, uh, CLE, I presented about thirty minutes along with a co-presenter, Dara Bassi, together an hour on the spiritual aspect of the practice and. What was neat is that I thought, well, I'm going to present this issue to what traditionally a very critical audience, right? And and I'm going to be prepared for lots of pushback and lots of you know, eye roll perhaps even. And and I found people to be extraordinarily receptive to the idea of yes, I'm I'm a whole person, right? I I I, I have this all these aspects to myself, and spirituality is one. So how? You know, we talk about the spirit of the law. Why not speak of the spirit of the lawyer, right? That we're connected. Um, and so I, I brought that into the conversation. I've done that a few times now. I think people are very receptive to the idea of of uh, the spiritual aspect of the work. Sorry, excited about this topic. And I could go on for that. Let me no, <laughs> no. And I could hear it forever. When you just said we talk about the spirit of the law, why not the spirit of the lawyer? I've got the chills. That is beautifully stated. And um, just if you will, you said that you distinguish religion from spirituality and you have a definition you put in your CLE materials. What is it? Uh, the, m- my definition that I think is a, a good universal faith neutral definition for spirituality is this it's the nature of every person to possess an inner trust and strength which in turn gives meaning to work and life so i'll say that just one more time just it's the nature of every person to possess an inner trust and strength which in turn gives meaning to work and life the the spiritual journey is going to be that process of developing that internal strength and trust right so so when we um you know when we're young we 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 typically have our trust and strength isn't from external sources it's from our parents right it's from our community it's from our schools it's that's where we sort of figure out who we're going to be right we're going to mirror those kinds of uh, examples particularly the parents Uh, if you don't have that uh, you may not build a good inner trust and strength, right? And and the idea is to is is externally we start to develop trust and strength, and at some point we've got to start internalizing that. So so 
for some people, there's this image of a, of a God, whatever he or she is going to look like, right? And that's an external view on the religion side. It's an external view. We're going to develop trust and strengthen that. But sometimes at some point, we have to start internalizing that. And that's where we build our own trust and strength in ourselves. That's that spiritual, uh, that's that spiritual health. That's that spiritual strength that we develop in ourselves. If not, we're just the kind of pinballs, right? Yeah. Um, you remind me, I think I've heard that if your spiritual belief system and your law practice don't align there, that's where not being well, you know, that's where mental health and emotional health can go off the rails. It, that's been both my training in the, in the master divinity program. Um, it's three years, 90 credit hours, like law school. Right. And, and there I took the uh, uh, pastoral care and counseling track. Uh, I had no vision of going into the pulpit, right. Or changing careers. I went to go pick up this additional set of skills, really how to better communicate with clients, how to work with uh, um, th those within my profession, those outside of my profession. And, and a lot of counseling courses, a lot of um, uh, care courses there. And yes, that's there we learned about disconnect, right, or dissonance. So the person you are internally, to the extent it varies from the person you are externally, um, the, the, that distance, right, that mask or face you put on, to the extent that that the, the extent that those differ, I think, is like almost a measure of our stress, right? It's it's the distance between who we are inside, who we are outside. The further those are disconnected, I'm I'm gonna like extend my arm. One hand's uh, at the heart, the other hand's extended out. You know, if I'm a very very different person, I'm gonna have more and more stress in my view, and and in my experience, the more I can bring those together, the more I can integrate those. The more I'm, I'm the same person, the less stress, uh, at least internal stress and anxiety I will have. It's been that's I come to you in that in that regard a bit like a witness in the courtroom, right? Like who does everyone want to hear in the courtroom, right? It's really not really the lawyers, it's not the judge. You go to hear the witness. So if I can come to you as a witness and say this is what I've experienced and seen, maybe that's my my highest and best use right now. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, if you step back from it and don't think of it as sort of woo-woo or, you know, some kind of, you know, odd way to look at things, if you really step back, of course that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm a witness too, uh, to that. Um, here's a question again. I mean, I'm so happy to ask you all of these questions because of the way you look at all of this. What are your views on current DEI efforts, and do you think the current approaches are helpful to well-being? And I know that you might. This might be a, a an answer that not everybody expects, right? Yep, <laughs> both a question and and and, uh, and and my response. I I know we we did talk about this a little bit, and so I, I'm happy to to take the next step and speak a little more publicly about it. This will be a, a, a sensitive topic um, to to everyone who listens, I'm sure, one way or the other. Uh, I am increasingly concerned about the way we're approaching DEI. Um, 
diversity, uh, inclusion, equity, all these are important issues. But uh, I think the way we're going about it, they're not just important, right? They're, they're critical issues. But, but, but I'm finding the way we're going about it, I think, is becoming more divisive than it is really inclusive, which is the irony. Um, I had an experience that, that uh, right before the pandemic that kind of opened my eyes to this. Um, I was in a group of um, other um, seminary trained people. A number of them were pastors, are pastors. Uh, uh, others are in other parts of ministry work. And it's uh, we met in a cigar shop in Virginia Highlands. Uh, the gathering was called Holy Smokes. And uh, just a lovely time. But we got into one conversation with um, uh, a, a, a male, African-American um, minister. And we were, you know, kind of we were working through how best to integrate conversation in, in, in uh, churches. And the group was very split. We were maybe 15, 18 people, very mixed, you know, about half white, half uh, other um, ethnicities. And, and what I was surprised at is when he wanted me, this minister friend, wanted me not to see him as somebody who is committed to some mutual cause, in this case, um, a, a, a particular faith tradition. He didn't want to enter the conversation with me or any conversation with me in that regard. He wanted to enter the conversation with me acknowledging him as a black male first. And he wants to acknowledge me as a white male first. And then we can talk about common ground. And, and that seemed exactly flipped to me. I, I literally didn't know what to do with that. It, it, it seemed that we were hinging the conversation on immutable characteristics, characteristics that I've got nothing, no control over, neither does he. Yet that was the defining point as opposed to this common ground. So I, you know, I tried processing that for a little while, tried talking to a few other people about it. Um, and, and, and I began to see too that we're, uh, we're doing some of this, a lot of this in our organizations, right? We're, we're making immutable characteristics, gender, race, um, uh, the, these other things we have a carve out for religion, but but these things we put those front and center as opposed to the common ground that we share in being in a particular firm or a particular organization or a church or synagogue, right? I, I hope I'm explaining this clearly enough. But but my my concern with DEI efforts right now is that we're accentuating the differences and leading in the conversation with the differences. Sometimes in ways that those differences can't be reconciled, rather than coming into the conversation on common ground. On, on how what about if share. you give a, a real example? Do you have a real life example of how a firm might do something that you would regard based on immutable characteristics as opposed to common ground? Sorry to throw that at you. No, but... um, yeah, no. I, I'm trying to think of an actual example. I can't think right now of an actual example. I don't want to have a hearsay example, right, of what I've heard. I want to be able to say what I've seen. I just can't. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Okay. Um, yeah. We'll have a follow-up. We'll have it in the yeah. um, online when we have uh, comments on the podcast. We will have that okay. in comments. Yeah. Let's do it that way. I Thanks. Agree. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I'm very interested in what you say, but I think like others, it might be a little abstract, you know? So if I could see, see something tangible or hear mm -hmm. something tangible, sure. 
yeah sure. that might help um well here we are back to my question on the pandemic it seems like it's hard to get away from that um after even all this time after two years plus um, of the pandemic and on again off again news about new variants new vaccines boosters masking uh you know yes no yes no maybe uh, everybody I know is somewhere between jittery and just flat out burned out. But as lawyers, nobody really wants to hear us complain. You know, FBU, as you said, nobody, mm -hmm. we're, we're still somewhat of FBUs. They just want us to get the job done. What would you recommend and what do you personally do to cope and to take care of yourself? What I have found myself doing the last few years, particularly since pandemic, the pandemic is um, finally taking some of our own advice, right? And I'm setting some boundaries. I'm finding that's to be helpful. Um, early in my career as a lawyer, honestly, maybe maybe most of it until recently, I have tried to be so responsive to the to the client, right? First to the partner, then to my peers, and and to absolutely to the client, right? So I I I, I would work just. 18 hours a day regularly months on end would just that was the normal pace I, I have been in the office thanksgiving morning i've been in the office christmas morning so it's just that kind of full bore effort to be an ultimate service provider and that absolutely takes a toll it has taken a toll on me i have paid the price for that um so now i'm just being more open on on what i can deliver when and and setting some boundaries and just trying to set some expectations. Most of the clients understand. Uh, in fact, I, I, I think they all do. They all understand. Look, here's when I can get to this. So as long as you, you know, you under under promise and over deliver, right? If you can do yeah. that, then that's always a good a good strategy. Uh, but I've just had to be more transparent to uh, clients, and that's on me. I've got to be transparent to to the clients. Um, I need to be at the office most days, most of the time. I need to be engaging with my uh, um, my peers, uh, those who hold me accountable and those who I need to hold accountable. But we need to be engaged in our work. We, we can't we can't phone it in, bro. Right? We can't fake it. We've got to fully be engaged. If we're virtual, we've got to be fully engaged virtually. So we've got to have, it has to be both ways here, right? It's got, again, we've got this organization we're all committed to an organization, a firm. We've we've got to be there for the firm. The firm needs to be there for us. That that's got to it's got to work together, right? Yeah. Um, but but that's that's what's helpful for, for me now. It's just being more realistic in what I can do, and and delivering those, and not creating. You know what? To Lynn, I'm, I've always I think I've been good about this, but now I'm just being vocal about it. I'll tell people, look, this, this is not an emergency. When you get to it, and once in a while, when I have the legit emergency, I will say, look. This really is a legit emergency. This this has happened. We need help now getting something done. And and I I expect people to pull together to, to get that done at that point. But you can't do that every day, right? It's th th then you just lose credibility. Well, um, I think and, and that's when you burn the point out. where where people have lost credibility because that's where we are, where everything's a fire drill. That's happened in my life. One thing that I've identified along these lines for me is what do I have control over and what do I not have control over? One thing I have control over is exactly what you're saying. How do I react to these emails? Got to have it now, got to have it now. You know, I needed this in two hours. Every email is like that. 
well, what is my response going to be? Is it always going to be to drop everything, go into a panic and stress myself out? And as you said, just be the ultimate service provider. Or am I going to do something to take care of myself, whether it's to call the client? Because I, I know my clients, I've got good relationships with them and say, uh, and I've done this, you know, I've got this, this and this to do. How do you want me to prioritize it? Because I can't do them all. Um, I get a little testy. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I can get a little bit like that. Um, but uh, I've noticed about myself. I can try, I'm working on it. It's a work in progress to control my own knee jerk. Basically goes back to the panic. They won't like me. They won't love me. They won't think I'm a good lawyer if I don't respond in five minutes. Yeah. And I know intellectually that that's not true. I know they value me for other things, you know, institutional knowledge, advice, you know, everything in the universe. But hitting send in five minutes, but still there's a part of me that it's a bit of an addict response. I mean, I've been enough of an addict that I know that response when I feel it. And it is. I was listening to a, uh, a fairly new lawyer uh, um, talk about her visceral reaction to the ping on the email. And, and this is somebody who we you know, clearly identify as, as, as millennial, young millennial, even I'm, I'm at the tail end of the baby boomer age so we've got some couple of decades between us she and i and our ages yet i had those same responses i think it doesn't matter sort of where you are in your career what you know what, how we want to categorize ourselves in terms of you know what age cohort we're in it's just that experience of of uh having that um that pressure of thinking that just because someone can hit send uh, on a very complicated question, they're expecting a thorough analysis and a response back in just about as much time, right? You know, yeah. I've learned to just respond with an email that says confirming receipt of your email. I will get back to you, you know, a day or two or, or just try to set what the expectation is, right? Or let's have a conversation because that's quite an interesting question, but I've got more details that I need. You know, it's just, we've got to communicate more, help the client raise expectations. There are some clients, frankly, we need to fire. And, and I have had only needed to fire one or two clients really that I can remember because um, some are just, some are just, you know, I don't know if they were, psychopaths or just really spoiled or or whatever but they unfortunately they got to the position that they're in and they just cause a lot of damage probably internally and, and externally so uh yeah sometimes you have to make that hard decision too and it's particularly painful when it's a well-paying client yes and that is full circle to the first thing we talked about is organizational well-being mm -hmm. and to me to be willing to do that is critical yeah. Absolutely critical, rather than let your people continue to be abused and abused and abused. Yeah, the uh, this is you know just Paul's perspective on the world. But um, I, I started my career in the construction field. You know, I was one of those construction superintendents running you know uh, uh, projects, and I think the thing I learned there was as a superintendent, right? And this is just a scalable uh, example, whether you're manager or leader, or whatever. It, the, the, you have to provide top cover for your people. And having worked for plenty of people, I always wanted to make my boss look good. 
right? So that's kind of that symbiosis, I think. The the the, the boss needs to you know be the snowplow or the just provide the top cover, and I need to make my boss look good. If we can kind of get that that going, <laughs> you know, that that circle of that that transformative and and flourishing circle going, then I think that that really does benefit everyone. Um, not yeah. everything's not everything's perfect every day, right? But right. most days, most of the time. Yeah. Right, right. Um, well, getting down to what the state bar offers, because you and I are steeped in that. Uh, but I always like to ask this because I'm never sure of the answer. Do you think the state bar offers adequate resources to promote the well-being of our lawyers? And, you know, we offer an awful lot and it's getting more and more and more by the minute. Um, there's the wellness website, the lawyer's assistance program, the peer program, which connects peer to peer, um, you know, so many other programs. But to me, those are sort of the core three in terms of mental health and emotional health and alleviating stress and things like that. Is there anything you would like to see improved or added? You know, just like you've identified in DEI, is there something you think we're doing that could be done differently? Bottom line, no, I don't think there's anything, there's nothing more I can think of that we can add right now. We're, we have this array of services and array of volunteers like you and I working in this space because we recognize that, let's just, let's just make the machine analogy, right? If we're all machines, then we got to take care of the machine, right? You got to have the mechanics who are helping the machines along. And that's kind of the work we're doing, right? The, the machines, the lawyers, they need to be receptive to the idea that that these services are available, particularly that use your six um, counseling services. This uh, and maybe you hit on that before we close, but this idea of being able to use a counselor uh, uh, to to for six sessions on any issue once a year, and you, you can go back to the counselor many times, different issues, right? It's just six sessions, one issue. I think it's a godsend because you don't have to be in crisis to to, to use a, a counselor. You, you just like, you don't have to have a wreck before you go to your mechanic, right? You go to the mechanic for maintenance and tune-ups and preventive maintenance. And so you can use these counselors for, for crisis, of course, but also for just navigating the difficulties in life. And we have to be honest and open about this. Life is difficult. It, it doesn't matter really any of the externals, the house, the car, the school we went to, we are all united one way or the other through suffering. We have all suffered something somehow where we are currently suffering. So that's part of life. It's not like I think we ought to run out and try to, you know, suffer on purpose, but we just do, right? We're just navigating the world and other people. We suffer. So it helps to, it just it helps to get professional guidance on navigating those things. And, and, and don't forget, Lynn, uh, when people come to us, they're coming to a counselor. We're a counselor at law, right? They're, they're coming. Our clients aren't embarrassed to come to somebody who's got counselor in their name. So we should not be collectively the bar uh, members should not be embarrassed to go to someone who also is called a counselor to get to get guidance navigating legit issues because uh, they're all legit, right? So yeah. no, I think I think we're good. So and if we could change anything, maybe just as any perception to the extent there's any perceptions or misperceptions around going to see a counselor, there's any stigma to that. And we we have had we have worked I think fairly hard on that the last couple of years, right? Making sure people understand there's no connection between LAP, 
or the lawyer uh, wellness committee and and Paula Frederick's office, the general counsel, right? Just there's just no connection there, uh, and everything's done in confidence. So I think just as people get to know the services, these services are out there, and they start to use them, they'll they'll appreciate it. Um, it, it. It is a godsend to have these services available. Yeah, I agree. Um, and one sort of reality check that I want to say, you know, lawyers assistance program and the use your six is, as you say, a godsend in this moment. Um, I can't say post pandemic, but wherever we are, everybody in the therapy world is overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And you can't get in to see most people for two or three weeks. It's just the way it is. I've talked to EAP providers, therapists. I've talked to a lot of people about that. And I view the peer program as the bridge. It's more than just that. But while you're waiting, if you can connect with a peer who's walked the walk, non-judgmental, completely, as you say, confidential as well, I think that's an enormously positive use of that program. You know, the two together offer an awful lot to people. You know, the more and more I think about it, the more convinced I am that, in fact, I'm starting to work on this now. We need a an almost global peer program. I'm just, I'm trying to work on a national peer program through the ABA where it's there are no borders to any states. How that's going to go, I can't tell you. But imagine somebody in California with a particular issue, let's say gambling addiction, just pull it out of a hat, able to talk to somebody in Maine who's in their same place in life. They've got two children. The children are small, divorced, maybe. They're working in a solo, they've got a solo practice. So they've got tons and tons of pressure. You know, that's, you're not going to find that match every day in every state. Every state's got a pure program. But Georgia's the only one who has it online, number one. And number two, I think you need to expand it because I think, you know, therapy, use your six, is the gold standard. We don't have enough therapists to help the number of people who need help. If you look at the statistics, it's just a numbers game. You know, you see the always quoted either 20 to 25 percent of everybody in this country is going to experience a mental health issue every year. That's a huge statistic, and it doesn't even talk about, you know, other tangential issues. As you said, mental health issue, maybe it's not that, you know, maybe it's nothing diagnosable, maybe it's it's stress, you know, this the suffering of living, like you said. What we're offering, I think, is essential, and I think it's essential that people keep using it. So, you know, I'm glad I agree with you. I don't know what else we could do, frankly. Mm. I always like to ask the question, but I don't I don't really know what else other then convince people that yes, it is confidential and yes, it will help you. Yeah, yeah. And just perhaps can just continuing to normalize the 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 use, right? The the service. Just it's okay to go to a counselor, get just talk it through with somebody, you know. If uh, uh, anyway, yeah, it, it, we could we could applaud the state bar's efforts for that all day. I think it's just getting people in to use it as they need it, right? Uh, not everything needs counseling to navigate, but but when you need it, you need it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, I mean, it's improving. The, mm-hmm. You know, every year we we get better utilization, um, or generally every year we get better utilization, and that's 
it, it used to be, you know, not very good at all. And it's moving up into numbers, actually, that, you know, we've had to look at whether the the outsourced counselors can handle the volume. So, you know, that that's a good problem in a yeah. way. That's a good problem. Well, you and I could talk forever, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm going to close with just asking you, do you have any final thoughts to tell, you know, anything you want to tell us? Uh, it, um, so uh, I'm a little late into the practice of law. I was mid thirties when I went to law school, I started out in the construction engineering field. Um, I never thought I would be a lawyer growing up. Right. It, it is, uh, as I have sat in it now, you know, 25 years, I'm class of 98. Um, it is an honorable profession. It is really honorable professional and, and honorable people. I made a number of missteps in my early in my career. I think like a lot of people do. And I thought I had to be some sort of television version of a litigator or, you know, everybody was my enemy, you know, certainly opposing counsel was my enemy. I probably spent much too much time making enemy images of, um, those people who are either opposing or um, just in every direction, right? Eventually, particularly when you get overwhelmed and you don't realize you're getting uh, just really stressed, right? Then you start making enemy images of everybody. You start losing friends. You start having personal relationship problems. So the advice would be just keep in mind that we're honorable people in an honorable profession. We're trying to do the right thing. It is hard work. We need help individually and collectively from time to time uh, we want to try to be in a good environment um, when as we're working when we're working we should have people trying to take care of us we should be trying to take care of them it is this virtuous cycle and that virtuous cycle may be too it's it's not too philosophical or stretch i think it, it's it's working with and for each other in ways that benefit as, as many as possible and in that book better capitalism um we call it the ethic of mutuality, right? I've, there's my self-interest and I should, ideally, I have your self-interest at least at heart, right? I, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to suffer or, or lose in order for me to gain. We really can both gain in a good relationship. Um, and I think that's how the practice of law could be portrayed, has been in the past, is often. Um, and, and, and we just need to help everyone get there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me, and I love what you quoted from your book. I'm not really a go for the jugular kind of person. <laughs> you probably know that about mm -hmm. me. Um, but I honestly don't think I've ever lost anything by being more conciliatory, if you will, or more working with somebody than against somebody. Um, you know, I work with, I, I do contracts, so I don't go to court, but you know, there's opposing counsel on deals and things like that. And it's so much easier if you work together and you don't act from the get go, like you said, like the person is the enemy and you're there to carve out their liver if you possibly can, uh, you know, I think I probably get as good a result for my clients as somebody who does go for the for the jugular. So yeah. um, that's my point of view anyway. Yeah, I have um, experienced just a small number of people who are who are bullies. And, and the only thing they are going to ultimately understand is a bigger bully who can beat them back. So mm -hmm. there's the occasional 
so, so I recognize that, and I think that's you know we need to recognize that there are those people like that. So for them, they need a particular kind of lawyer who will go for the juggler and 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 stop the foolishness. Um, but is that's my I know early on my mistake is my that my assumption was oh that's everybody <laughs> you know that's I got to handle everybody that way and that's just not the case. To to your point, you're right. Yes, yeah, so, uh, we can get a lot more done with conciliatory efforts than just yeah. coming out of the gate. And, and when we come out of the gate that forcefully, we I've seen so many people do that and then just like really triple to themselves out of the gate and it's hard to recover. Yeah, your point is well taken though, that there are some people that you do have to, you know, meet them where they are. <laughs> they, they, and you've got to win. You just, then then you've got to take to the mat and you've got to prevail, but it's a small number, you know. Right, really right, is, ultimately, it yeah, really well, is. I think so, I think so. Well, thank yeah. you for that um, final thought of mutuality. I like that very much. Um, and thank you so much for your time. I knew this was going to be a great conversation. Um, I hope you and your family stay safe and well through whatever you know is coming down the pike. The same to all of our listeners. And I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Lawyers Living Well. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lynn Garson, Chair of the Lawyer Assistance Program. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lawyers Living Well. If you need immediate confidential help, call the LAP hotline at 1-800-327-9631. That's 1-800-327-9631. You can also visit lawyerslivingwell.org for more wellness resources through the State Bar of Georgia. That's lawyerslivingwell.org. We hope you can join us next time.